The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open our Bibles to study God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to concentrate on His Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that it illuminates everything in our lives and every, all of our thinking and every category of thought. It provides the frame of reference for every detail in life that we might learn how to look at life in terms of reality as you have decreed them to be and as you have created them to be and in terms of your will. Father, we pray now that as we study your word that we might be uh, able to concentrate, focus, to understand these things, see how they relate to our lives that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we continue our study on the spiritual life in Romans 6 through 8. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Last time I think we got down to about verse 13. Let's have a little review so we can understand the flow of Paul's argument, the flow of his thinking. He's building a case slowly but surely, increment by increment, through this section of Romans. In the first five or four chapters, he deals with uh, the need for justification. The end of chapter 3 and through chapter 4, the reality of justification. The justification is based not upon anything that we do. It's not based on our goodness, our morality, our ethics. It's based solely and exclusively on our possession of righteousness, of Jesus Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us at the point of salvation. At that instant, God the Father imputes to us His righteousness, uh, the righteousness of Christ, and then when God the Father in His justice looks at that righteousness, He declares us to be just. That's why these words like justice, justification, righteousness, all come from the same Greek word. They are closely related and used many times over and again in uh, the epistle of Romans. So Paul builds this case very logically, very consistently. First three chapters he deals with the need for righteousness. Then by the end of chapter 3, the imputation that God is the one who provides the need through the imputation of righteousness. And then the results of righteousness in chapter 5, which are that we have peace with God. Now that brings, uh, them, brings the conclusion that since grace operated in the midst of all of the sinfulness that Paul outlined in the first three chapters, that perhaps someone might argue that, why, goodness, if we can uh, 
have that much grace in the midst of sin, why can't we just continue to sin that grace might increase? So there is the real response of the antinomian who wants to use grace as an excuse to sin. And then Paul also raises that question. I love the way he utilizes these rhetorical questions here because it focuses our attention on the issue and he raises the real questions that people ask. And there are the, the, the antinomians who truly ask that. And then there's the legalist who says, well, if you really teach grace, somebody's going to abuse it. So let's not teach grace. And so Paul builds his argument in the first uh, 11 verses. And we'll review them under, under six points. First of all, he states that we have been identified. Every believer has, at the moment of salvation is identified with Christ's death, with his with his judicial death, that is, his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, so that in his death we truly judicially die to sin. That is a reality in our life. It is a retroactive reality because at the instant we have faith in Christ in 1960s or 70s or 80s or whenever it might be for you, then that, that moment you died at the cross retroactively. So that is why it is called retroactive positional truth. We are identified in Christ. That is our position and identified with His death. Not only are we identified with His death, but point number two, we have been buried with Him. So that point three, we are resurrected to new life. And Paul makes the argument that just as Christ came out of the grave and was resurrected to new life, so we have been resurrected to new life, a new quality of spiritual life. We cannot have a spiritual life prior to salvation. That's one of the, the major things that is so popular today is everybody talks about spirituality and getting in touch with their spiritual side. And if you listen carefully to what they're saying, I think they're just getting in touch with their emotions or getting in touch with their lusts or whatever it might be, their self-absorbed subjectivism. They're trying to figure out what they want out of life and and to somehow get past the rat race and find some meaning or solution in life. And they're calling that spirituality. But it has nothing to do with what the Bible calls spirituality. They may associate spirituality with emotion. They may associate with some kind of religious activity. I think it's very interesting that one of the trends in the last 15 years has been a number of people who have gone into, gone into monasticism, gone into some form of, of some overt asceticism like that. It's been interesting. I know of several cases in, among very well-known evangelicals who have no background in liturgical religion, who have... I had one professor at Dallas who's now an Episcopalian, Francis Schaeffer's son, who certainly grew up a Presbyterian, is now a Eastern Orthodox, um, there are a number of others who have gone into Roman Catholicism. In fact, I read an article on the Internet. Gordon Conwell Evangelical Seminary up here in Boston uh, has had, uh, I read an article, and apparently a number of their graduates have gone uh, and, and converted into Roman Catholicism in the last uh, ten years, such that somebody wrote an article about it. So I find it fascinating that, that people are beginning to identify spirituality with that sort of formal, ritualistic, uh, overt asceticism type of approach to spirituality. But that is not what the Bible teaches spirituality is. It has to do, first of all, with our relationship to God, and we can't have a relationship with God until we are born again, until we are regenerated, because we're born without a human spirit. 
We are born soulish, 1 Corinthians 2.12 says. Sukikos man is soulish. He lacks a human spirit, so he can't have a relationship with God. And it is not until he is given new life, which includes a human spirit, that enables man to have that new life. That's the spiritual life, and it is the growth of that life. Because at the instant of salvation, we are given this new life in Christ, but we are a spiritual infant, we're a spiritual baby, and growth has to take place, and that's based upon nourishment. And that nourishment comes from the Word of God. We're commanded in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like a newborn baby, desire or hunger or crave the milk of the Word. So that is how we grow, is by means of the Word. Now, what Paul is looking at here in his argument is focusing on the realities, the judicial realities that take place at the instant of faith. First, we're identified with Christ in his death. Second, in his burial. Third, in his resurrection to new life. And from that we learn, point number four, that salvation is not the end, but it is the means to an end. It is the means to an end. We are uh, resurrected so that we might pursue a newness of life. This is in verse 4. So that we too might walk in newness of life. That is the purpose of our salvation. We're not saved so we can go to heaven. We're saved so that we can have a new spiritual life and then execute that spiritual life. That's the purpose, uh, one of the main purposes of salvation. So that takes us to point five that in Paul's argument that this new spiritual life is ours positionally, but it does not become ours in experience until we begin to apply the spiritual life mandates. There is a growth process. So there's a distinction between what is ours positionally, that's just as real, but it's just not ours experientially. And so we have to apply the mandates, the imperatives of the Word of God in order to grow. And growth in the spiritual life is just like growth is analogous in many ways to growth in life. It takes time. It doesn't go automatically. It is incremental. Sometimes it's faster than other times. I think you parents can take a look and watch your kids and draw a lot of analogies from watching them grow up and begin to learn and discover things about themselves and their talents and their, their abilities. The same thing I think is true in the spiritual life that as we grow and mature, God will make, it will become clear to us what our spiritual gifts are. I, I really have a problem today with, with the usual orientation on spiritual gifts, which is to let's have a class and all discover our spiritual gifts. Sort of sounds like psychobabble couched in spiritual gifts terminology, which in fact it is in a lot of places. Uh, I don't have time to go into that sidetrack, but that's exactly what it is. And what the Scriptures teach us is that as you grow and mature, focusing on the issues in the spiritual life, and as you learn and grow, you will be, your spiritual gift will become evident to you. You'll just naturally want to function in those areas, whatever they may be, whether it's teaching, whether it's helps, whether it's administration, that's a byproduct of your spirituality. It is not a cause for spiritual growth, and that's another problem that is our confusion that so often happens today. But the spiritual life is ours positionally and doesn't become ours until we begin to grow. And then finally, Paul concludes that we are no longer enslaved because we're dead to sin. We are no longer enslaved to the tyranny of the sin nature. And that model, that metaphor of slavery, then becomes the image of the second half of, of, the, uh, of the chapter. He starts off with a, with a question, uh, a rhetorical question, and then he follows that up with a denial, and then he asks 
the question back in verse 3, are you ignorant? Literally, it's not, do you not know, as it's translated in the uh, New American Standard. In fact, if you take a comparison of the first half of the, ver- of the chapter down to verse 14 with the second half, they, they are structured in a very similar manner. They start off with a question, what shall we say then? Are we to con- at the beginning, it's are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law? So it asks a question, it denies the, the proposition in the question, and then asks, don't you know something? Or as it is at the beginning of verse 3, or do you not know? And literally in the Greek, it's, are, are you ignorant that all of us have be, who have been baptized? And in verse 16, it's, do you not know something? So the issue then comes back to, comes back to knowledge. Now, last time we got down to verse 13, and we saw that one of the key words in verses 12 through 14 has to do with this word presenting the members of your body uh, to sin, and that is the uh, Greek word parahistemi, which has to do with offering or giving. Uh, We talked about the fact that in the old... uh, older evangelical tradition going back into the 19th century based on the King James Version that was translated as uh, yield. And you have all kinds of things built on yieldedness as if yieldedness is some sort of mental attitude that you have to work up inside yourself so that now you're, you're yielded. And that we talked about the fact that there were different uh, models of sanctification that were, were presented and they're coming out of the holiness movement, coming out of the Keswick movement that took place in the 19th century, it would be diagrammed like this. Here's the cross. The point of salvation, you put your faith and trust in Christ alone and you're saved. And you begin your spiritual life and there may may be some minor growth, but for real growth to take place, you have to reach a second stage of some type. Now, sometimes there's a lot of emphasis placed on this second stage. Sometimes it's very little, but there's always... They always seem to present the second stage that would be called anything from simply dedication where you walk the aisle and dedicate your life to Jesus and now you're going to be yielded and that, of course, bumps you up to a higher growth plane. And in its most extreme form, it became identified in the charismatic movement as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that this was a second work of grace. You only got salvation grace when you trusted Christ, and it wasn't until you had this second work that you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you get the saving package at the cross and the sanctification package at dedication. And, of course, in the charismatic movement, the sign of the baptism with the Holy Spirit was tongues. Now, that that's really represents a spectrum of theology that came out in the late, 18, uh, late 1800s and it was that kind of yielded terminology, and I read several quotes that sort of continued in a lot of evangelical literature. And I read some quotes from Louis Berry Chafer and from John Walvoord and from Dwight Pentecost showing that and illustrating that, that even down through seminary, through Dallas Seminary, there was this sort of residual effect. They utilized that old Keswick holiness terminology but they really didn't mean it the same way the Keswick holiness crowd used it. In fact, Chafer completely rejected 
that. But but that but still, the key issue in the Christian life for Chaffers, he talks about it in in uh, he that is spiritual. He uses that word yield, and it is really better understood as to present or to offer. To present or to offer is a much better concept, and it gets us away from some of the what I would call subjective, mystical overtones of, of yieldedness. So Paul brings us to a conclusion in verses 12 through 14 for that first section, which we looked at last time. He says, therefore, and then we have a prohibition, don't let sin reign. The first command, the first command that we find in all of Romans is in verse 11. Consider yourselves, reckon or think, it's logizomai, meaning to calculate, to evaluate, to think. To, on the basis of this information, therefore, think, consider, reckon yourselves to be dead, that is, separate from sin, so that it doesn't have control over you, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign. In other words, as a believer, a real break has taken place, so that the sin nature does not have to dominate, domineer, it's no longer the tyrant in your life as it is from salvation, I mean from birth to salvation. You see, most people have a problem with that. But the reality is, as we look at the sin nature, and we understand that the sin nature has an area of weakness that produces personal sins, it also has an area of strength that produces human good. And so everything that a person does from the moment of of physical birth, because they are spiritually dead, because there is nothing spiritual in them at all, the Holy Spirit's not working in them, the only source, is, of, of everything is the sin nature. All the good that an unbeliever does, that comes from the sin nature. All the bad, all the sin, the personal sin, comes from the sin nature. So that from physical birth, PB, up to the moment they trust Christ, all they can do is operate on the sin nature. They have no choice. They are completely under the domination and tyranny of the sin nature. And that's true for every single one of us doesn't matter how nice and wonderful and good we are. We were all under the lust and the, the domination of the sin nature until we were saved. And that's Paul's point. And that's when the power is broken. Therefore, he says, don't let sin continue to reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and, go, and do not go on presenting. That's that word, parahistemi, which means to offer. It has the idea of you have a choice. All these imperatives... The imperative mood is addressed to our volition. So the point here is that you have the option. Now, as a believer, you have a freedom of volition that you never had prior to salvation. You have the same level of freedom of volition that Adam had prior to the fall. Because even after the, because after the fall, even though he still has volition, it is tainted. Because all he can do is produce sin and human good from the sin nature. But now we have the option of not following the sin nature. And so Paul says, don't let sin reign and don't go on offering yourself. That's what you're doing. Every time you sin, you are offering yourself to the control of your sin nature. Don't go on offering the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But in contrast, offer yourselves to God. Notice there's only two options. I want to really stress this. There's only two options. You can't be offering, you can't want to do something, and I've heard people, I've heard seminary professors, I've heard pastors say this, that, well, we have sin natures and we never do anything from pure motive. 
even at our very best, it's still tainted by some selfishness. Well, if it's still tainted by selfishness and arrogance, either then what Paul is saying is it's either sin or it's not sin. If it's got even a little bit of arrogance in there, then that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't go on presenting members of your body to sin, but present yourselves to God. It's one or the other. It's not both. And when you start thinking in terms of the fact that it can be both, it has terrible impact on your understanding of the filling of the Spirit, on confession, on the spiritual life, everything else, because all of a sudden you start subtly shifting to where spirituality is morality and just trying to do things on your own, and it's a devastating process. So it's an option of one or the other, either presenting your members to unrighteousness or presenting yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Conclusion or explanation, verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. And this is an ethical imperative and it should be understood in the sense that for sin should not be master over you. You have that option. It's not automatic that sin will not be master over you. You still have volition and you can put yourself back under the tyrannical control of your sin nature anytime you choose. So in verse 14, Paul says, For sin should not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Now at this point, Paul thinks, well, maybe they really didn't get the point. So he stops his thought there. Now the reason I make that point is because if you, if you skip down to 7.1, he says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, he, that's the next time that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. See, he introduces the contrast between law and grace in verse 14, but he doesn't develop it until you get to 7.1. So he's going to stop the flow of his argument in verse 14, and he's going to come back and look at the same subject matter again from a slightly different perspective starting in verse 15. He's going to begin it the same way he began the opening of the chapter. First, he asked a question, what then? Before he said, what shall we say then? And now he asked the question, uh, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? So he is going to develop the inference there. Now, in the first question, back in 6.1, the question was, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? So, the first half of the chapter, he challenges the inference, the false inference, that the believer could continue to sin to get more grace. He challenges the false inference that the believer could, if you continue to sin, will just get more grace. That was the antinomian inference. And then here in the second question, the issue is that sin really doesn't matter anymore because we're under grace. Now, at one time or another, I think every believer, if they're honest, and they've ever had an inkling of what grace is, has thought that, if not operated on it for some period of time. I think that's true of almost everybody. It's, uh, I think it's typical of immaturity. And the problem is that, that when we don't recognize that that is going to be the reality in a, the immature believer's life, then all of a sudden what will happen with pastors is they'll start trying to come up with a some sort of legalistic system or they'll shift their sanctification because they're, they're afraid that, well, all these, all these people are just being licentious now. They're just being 
they're a- acting so antinomian, they're just abusing grace. Well, I think that if you're really teaching grace, that that is going to happen. Uh, the same thing happens with your kids. How many times as parents you've taught your kids something related to a principle of grace or you've given them for the first time some freedom and they've taken advantage of it? I think that's just indicative of immaturity. You're going to take advantage of it until you wake up and realize that if you abuse it, you abuse your freedoms, your responsibilities as a child, your parents are going to uh, spank you, or at least they should if they're biblical, and uh, you're going to go through discipline. And that's what happens with believers. They realize, gosh, I'm saved. I have the grace of God. I can, I can still sin. Oops. Eventually we learn that God's going to discipline us and, and we get tired of getting that discipline. So we decide that grace doesn't mean I can get away with it. Grace means I, I, I just am saved and my relationship with God isn't based upon what I do or what I don't do. So this is a false inference that grace means that we can just sin with impunity without ever having to deal with the consequences. It rejects the idea that grace somehow will overlook or excuse sin. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines whom He loves. And that will always be true. So grace does not mean there are no mandates, no absolutes, no imperatives for the spiritual life. Now you may not recognize that that's happening, but I can tell you of about five former doctrinally sound churches around the country who are slipping into antinomianism and teaching exactly that right now, that there really aren't any imperatives in the spiritual life that you have to apply. So, even though we haven't hit that problem yet, and we're not going to hit that problem yet, fortunately we're far enough removed to where we don't, we don't impact, get, get the impact from that, That is going on out there. But I know that there are some people who listen to tapes who get hit with that every now and then. So we have to address it. Now, Paul raises the question, shall we sin? Shall we go on sinning because we're not under law? In other words, can we get away with it but we're under grace? May it never be. Meganoita, strong negation. No, not at all. And then he raises the question, verse 16. He says, do you not know? And when Paul says this, and This is a favorite rhetorical device of of the Apostle Paul. He uses it many different times in 1 Corinthians. Follows it up the same way. Do you not know? And then it's a a hati clause. And uh, I don't know why the English translators always tend to do this. I would do it much differently. Hati, in in Greek, you do not have quotation marks. So if you're going to say something like, Bill says in English, then you put a comma and quote, and then give the quote, close quote, period, and then close quote. In Greek, to signify a quotation or a principle, you would, instead of using the quotes, you use this phrase, hati. Hati can indicate a direct quotation, it can indicate an indirect quotation, and it can also be a causal word, because. But here it's introducing a principle, and I would translate it like this. Do you not know? Colon. Because what follows is going to be a principle that should be common knowledge. That's how Paul starts this. That's why he uses the same type of approach back in verse 3. Are you ignorant that? It's the same thing, a hati clause. And then he introduces a principle. And what he's saying is, and the reason he goes to both of these principles is they're 
their common knowledge so that the Romans that he is writing to know this principle. So he's going to start on a point of common ground. They, he knows they know the principle and he knows they believe the principle. So he's going to remind them of the principle and then he will very logically unpack what that principle means and its application for the spiritual life. So let's look at the, the principle in verse 16. It says, Don't you know that when you offer... When anyone, it's a, really just a general statement, when anyone offers themselves to someone as a slave for obedience, then the one who offers himself as a slave of, is a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So he takes a general principle from life. He says, if you go out and you offer your services to somebody where you are going to be under their authority, then you are making yourself a slave to them. We all agree. We all understand that. Now, you are a slave to whomever you obey. You're either going to obey the sin nature and be a slave to your sin nature, resulting in death, or you are going to be a slave to righteousness, putting yourself under the authority of God, and that will result in righteousness. Now, at that point, we have to raise a very important hermeneutical question. When he comes to the end there, we all understand the principle, or should understand the principle, that if you offer yourself to someone to obey them, then that makes you a slave of that person for that time, for the time being anyway. And it's up to your volition whether you're there or not. But you have two options here. Once again, it's only two options. It's not one or the, uh, it's not one, it's not both, a little bit of both, a little of this and more of that, or a little of that and more of this. It's one or the other. It's either slaves of the sin nature or slaves of God. One or the other. You can't serve both at the same time. One results in death, and the other results in righteousness. So here's the issue. You have death, and you have righteousness. Now, what does he mean by death and righteousness? Your first indication is to think that death here is talking about Perhaps temporal death. And what kind of righteousness? Well, perhaps this is experiential righteousness. It's talking about the spiritual life. So if I offer myself to uh, obedience to God, then that will result in righteousness. But let's look at the context a little more in the next couple of verses. But we, before we get there, I want to review the doctrine of deaths in Scripture. There are uh, seven different deaths. The first is spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God in human life. Now, there are two kinds of spiritual death. There is human spiritual death, which takes place at the moment of birth. It entered into the human race when Adam sinned. God said, the instant you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And there he uses a cow infinitive absolute with a cow perfect. And it should not be translated, dying you will die. There's no process of dying involved. It's instantaneous that at the instant you eat of the fruit, you will die. And since he didn't die physically, he died spiritually. Now, I've gone through that. I know some of you have heard in the past that that should be translated, dying you will die. And I think the first time I talked this to the congregation, I went through every single use of the Cal Infinitive Absolute and the Cal Perfect in Genesis, demonstrating that if you try to translate it with a gerund or participle plus the main verb, dying, that's a participle or gerund in English, 
dying you will die, that, that doesn't make sense anywhere else in that kind of a construction because that's just a bad translation. All God is saying is the instant you eat, you're going to die. It's not physical death. It's only spiritual death. Because if they had had, continued to have access to the tree of life in the garden, they would have continued to live physically without physical death. That's why God had to place the cherub with the flaming sword at the entrance to Eden is to prevent the human race from having access to the tree of life. So all that is talking about is spiritual death and every other category of death, from physical death to sexual death, carnal death, every other category of death is the result of spiritual death. Spiritual death is the root cause. So you have human spiritual death and B, substitutionary spiritual death, which is the spiritual death of Christ on the cross when He was judicially separated from God the Father for those three hours between noon and 3 p.m. when all the sins of humanity were poured out on Him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So during that time that he was judicially carrying in his body and the, the sins of the world, when God the Father was imputing them to him, God could not have fellowship with the Son, and so there was a judicial uh, break in their relationship. So that's spiritual death. The second category uh, of death in the Scripture is physical death, which is the separation of the soul from the body. Then there is the second death. This is the eternal condemnation of all unbelievers. It is for unbelievers alone and it takes place subsequent to the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment on all unbelievers because they do not possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you can find that in Revelation 20, 12 to 15, Hebrews 9, 27, and Revelation 2, 11. The fourth category is sexual death. The only person that this is referenced to in the Scriptures is Abraham and Sarah, Romans 4, 17 to 21, and Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. Then there is fifth, the... We'll advance the roll a little bit. Fifth, there is the positional death of the believer. This is what takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone when we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection through the baptism of God, uh, of God the Holy Spirit. So that is a legal identification with, the, with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We've studied that in Romans 6.2. Then there is carnal or temporal death. Now, we have to watch this because this is going to become a factor in this chapter. Carnal death uh, references James 1.15 that sin con- when sin conceives, it brings forth death. So that when the sin nature uh, conceives and we are move from, let's say we're at the cross, we have the right circle, which is the temporal circle. We are in fellowship filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we sin and we're out of fellowship in carnality. This is carnal death. There is no life there in relationship to uh, a relationship, in terms of a relationship or fellowship with Christ. We're still spiritually alive, but we are carnally dead and divorced from a relationship with God the Holy Spirit who produces a quality of life. We'll look at that concept in a minute. Then there is, seventh, there is dead works 
there are, I think I said seven types of death at the beginning. There are eight. And the eighth is the sin unto death. Now, when we look at this passage and it mentions death, we have to decide which one it is. What type of righteousness? What type of death? Righteousness, we have two categories. The first category is imputed righteousness. And the second category is experiential righteousness. When the believer produces the fruit of the Spirit under the filling of the Spirit called divine good, that's experiential righteousness. Now, to answer that question, we have to understand, look at verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were, past tense, there it's an imperfect tense, an imperfect active indicative of a me. It's a customary imperfect, meaning habitual action. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's a terrible translation. We'll retranslate it in a minute. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, at that point, we see that the righteousness in context is imputed righteousness. The righteousness in context is imputed righteousness because it's talking about what we became slaves to at the instant of salvation. So it's not talking about experiential righteousness. It's talking about its basis, which is our imputed righteousness. So therefore, if this is talking about imputed righteousness, it can't be talking about carnal death. It must be talking about spiritual death. We have to keep our categories together. Let's go back and look at that. You, don't you know that when, just a general principle, when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now, here are the options, Paul says. Either it's a sin resulting in death, which is the, the unbeliever's experience. From the moment of physical birth until the cross, you are continuously presenting yourself to sin, and that has, as it, you're born spiritually dead, and you continue spiritually dead. Or obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, what obedience is that that we're talking about here? Well, if 17 and 18 are talking about a past versus a present scenario, past is before you're saved, present is the result of salvation, then what we're talking about here in terms of obedience is obedience to the gospel mandate which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So Paul, once again, is taking us back to what happens at the instant of salvation. He did the same thing in Romans uh, 6, 3, and 4. When he's answering the first question, he goes back to what took place at salvation. What took place at salvation was you were identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So that's where the break takes place. That's where the sin nature's tyrannical control is broken. So now Paul is answering us the same question from a different slant, and he says, remember the principle, you're either a slave to one or a slave to the other. Before you were saved, you were a slave to sin. That was the only option. But if you obey the gospel, that will result in righteousness, in imputed righteousness. Now, that lays down the principle. Now, he's going to spend 17 to 23 
unpacking all of the senses of this passage. He did the same thing from 4 through 11. It's just like unraveling a, a, a logical ball of yarn. And he's going to start pulling out one thread, one point at a time, and helping us understand its significance. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, this is not a great translation, as I said, so let's break it down a minute. It starts off, the first part is acceptable, but thanks be to God. Now, he is thanking God for something. So, we can't say that he is thanking God that they were slaves of sin. That's not what he's thanking them for. Now, it might look that way at a first glance if you look at the Greek, but there is an interesting little uh, structure, grammatical structure here called parataxis. And in parataxis, what you do is, especially if you're writing a little quickly, you'll take two clauses... And they're linked together by what appears to be a coordinating conjunction. But once you begin to understand the meaning of the two clauses, you realize they're not equal. Now, the first time I sat down, first blush ran through the passage. I thought this ought to be translated, but thanks be to God because you were slaves of sin. But you obeyed from the heart. Well, that would mean that he was thanking God that they were slaves to sin and that he would not do. And so what you have here when you understand the relationship of two clauses on the basis of parataxis, it makes the first clause subordinate or concessive to the second clause, which means it should be translated. But thanks be to God uh, because or despite the fact that you were slaves to sin, you obeyed. Or another way would be, thanks be to God that though you were, or although you were slaves to sin, you obeyed. It's emphasizing their past condition as slaves to sin. And it's emphasizing that as slaves to sin, as unbelievers under the control of the sin nature, because there couldn't be any option, right? No alternative. They were able to obey the gospel. Now, how how is that possible? Because at the moment of salvation, or at the moment of gospel hearing, you have an evangelist. We'll put an E here for evangelist. That evangelist communicates the gospel, and God the Holy Spirit will substitute for God the human spirit and make the gospel understandable. What does the Holy Spirit do towards unbelievers? We studied that in detail in John 16. In John 16, 8-12, God the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world, not the believer. The world is the unbeliever. So that's what's taking place here. The evangelist explains the gospel to the best of his ability. God the Holy Spirit takes the key issues, which are sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, which is the unbelief defined in context the importance of believing in Christ. It's not personal sin. It has to do with with belief or unbelief in Christ. Righteousness, the need for righteousness, the need for imputed righteousness for salvation and judgment that Jesus Christ was judged at the cross and that the power of sin is broken at the cross. That's the sense. And we studied that in the tapes and the lessons in John 16. 
So the Holy Spirit then makes the gospel clear, and it comes and it enters into, we have two lobes of, of the innermost thinking part of the, of the human soul. The outer lobe is the noose. The inner lobe is the, I'll put K here for cardia or heart, the innermost thinking of the soul. And it enters into the noose so that it is understood by the unbeliever. And at that point, he has to exercise his volition, positive or negative, whether he will accept or reject it. And if he accepts the gospel, then it becomes, it enters into his cardia as epinosis truth. If he rejects it, he remains spiritually dead. If he accepts it, then at that moment, at that instant of time, then he is uh, born again and his slavery to sin is wiped out. So what Paul is saying here is, thanks be to God that although you were slaves to sin, and that is an uh, customary imperfect, you were continuously, it was the habit of your life, you had no option, you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart. Now, the New American Standard translates that, that you became obedient. That is a passive. Notice how they change the meaning. The original Greek is the aorist active indicative of hupakuo. Now, aorist means that it happens in past time. It's a consummative aorist here, which means that it just summarizes it all up and expresses it in terms of its re- results. It's a consummative aorist. It is active voice, which means the subject performs the action. In a passive voice, the subject receives. Now, the way it's translated by the New American Standard translators, you became obedient. That means that I, as a, at the moment of salvation, would receive the action of becoming obedient. That somehow disengages and diminishes my personal volition in the process. It is a bad translation. It is an active voice, and that means you obeyed. It's second person plural, so that should be translated, y'all obeyed, because he was a good southerner. But thanks be to God, although you were slaves of sin, you all obeyed from the heart. That is, as I said earlier with the diagram here, we'll go back to the diagram, the two consecutive circles. The outer circle is the noose, the thinking. Both represent the mentality of the soul. It has two spheres. The outer sphere is the noose. The inner sphere is the cardia. They were obedient from the cardia. The the noose is the realm of academic understanding. The cardia is the realm of spiritual understanding and application. This is only under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So they, they became, or they obeyed from the heart, from the cardia. And then we have another bad translation in the Greek. You obeyed from the heart that form of teaching, and it's tupas here. That's been here on first service. Tupas is where we get our word type. It means an example or a category. You obeyed you obeyed that category of teaching from didache it's the genitive from didache that category of teaching which and then you have the verb paradidomi now paradidomi 
means has a variety of meanings, but the one that fits here is the idea that is related to passing on or communicating traditional instruction or teaching. It should be translated to instruct or to teach, and here it is a passive, so what was taught. So the best translation is, but thanks be to God, although you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the cardia, from the heart, that category of teaching which was communicated to you, which was taught to you, which was which you were instructed by, which which was communicated to you. What is the category of teaching? It's the gospel. They can't do anything else because spiritual phenomenon is not understandable to the soulish unbeliever. Second Corinthians two twelve. The natural man, the soulish man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So Paul is emphasizing here exactly what took place in their experience and our experience at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we became obedient to that category of teaching, i.e. the gospel, which was communicated to us. And, verse 18, having been freed. Now, once again, we have a problem in our translation. I don't know why it is in this section that they have a series of anarthrous participles in the Greek and they just want to translate them like a gerund with an ing ending. And uh, it seems like there, any, any second-year Greek student ought to know that there are about eight or nine different meanings that, uh, that an anarthrous participle can have. It's adverbial, it can be temporal, it can be causal, it can be a participle of manner, it can be a concessive participle, it can be uh, a participle of attendant circumstance. There's various options. And you look at this, and it starts off with an anarthrous participle from... Eleutherao, which means to be free. It's an aorist passive. And what Paul is saying is something about being freed from sin. Now, it could be causal, which would be translated, because you have been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And that might make sense. But Paul is not talking about cause here. He's talking about something that happened in our experience at the moment of salvation. So I think the best translation is temporal. When you uh, were freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. See, the aorist participle in conjunction with the main verb that is also an aorist passive, it's an aorist passive indicative uh, from uh, doleo, or dolo, which means to be enslaved or to serve or to be under the authority of someone. Because that's an aorist, your main verb's an aorist tense, and your participle's an aorist tense. They reflect contemporaneous action. Participle tenses don't mean anything except in relationship to the tense of the main verb. So that would be translated, and when you were freed, you became. In other words, it's contemporaneous action. At the instant you were freed from sin, you became a slave to righteousness. There's no interim period. You don't have to wait to some second work of grace down the road where you dedicate your life or you're yielded or you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost or some other second work of grace. He is saying clearly, when you became freed at that same time, aorist tense to aorist tense, when you became freed, when you were freed, you became slaves of righteousness. It happened simultaneously at the same, same instant. So read verse 17 and 18 together. Thanks be to God that although you were slaves to sin from birth to salvation, 
you obeyed from the heart that category of teaching, the gospel, which was communicated to you. And when you were freed from sin, you became a slave of righteousness. Now, the sense there is a, is a slave with respect to righteousness or toward righteousness. That is the, the orientation of the slavery. That's the master, the slave of righteousness is imputed righteousness. Now, verse 19, Paul goes on and he recognizes that there are some inadequacies with this slavery analogy. Even Paul realizes that analogies fall apart sometimes. And he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is, the sin nature. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your sin nature. For just as you presented... Now, he starts off with the causal guard because he's going to give us an analogy just as indicates the analogy, a point of comparison. Just as you, past tense here, it's going to be presented. It's going to be our, our, our word again which is uh, parahistemi, in the aorist tense, and it's a past action, just as when you were unsaved, you presented, you offered your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which resulted in further lawlessness. So now, in other words, when you were an unbeliever, you had one option. You offered yourself continuously to your sin nature as your master. For just as you did that, now that you are a believer and that tyranny has been broken, you offer your members as slaves to righteousness. The issue here is, once again, your volition. You're commanded to offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. And what happens there? It results in hagiosmos, sanctification. Now, this gives us the overall process right now. You, offer, you present, that's your volition... You offer yourselves, the, your members of your body, as a slave, dative of reference, with reference to righteousness, and then you have an ace plus the accusative, which indicates the ultimate goal, which is sanctification. And that's what we're studying is the doctrine of sanctification. Hagiosmos is a noun here that's used ten times in the New Testament and is usually translated holiness or consecration, but I like sanctification. And it means to dedicate or have a life that is... Uh, usable in service to God, dedicated to God for His service. So this is the process, and that is that you make a volitional decision to offer yourselves to submit to the authority of God. That's really the issue here. Are you going to be oriented to the authority of God or not? Are you going to say, Lord, I'm going to do what Your Word says, or I'm going to do what I want to do? It's very simple. And then Paul comes back in for another uh, explanation before he goes in for the kill. Verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, and once again we have our, our imperfect tense, he's consistent, talking about the, the unbeliever, he is habitually a slave to sin, that is the only option he has. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now that's very clear. What he's saying is, here's the point. When you were a slave to sin, there was no righteousness in your life. Now you're a slave to righteousness. There shouldn't be any sin in your life. See, he doesn't leave us a whole lot of room to maneuver here. It's not like, okay, well, I can rationalize this and, and justify uh, my, my sin just because it, it's a lot easier to sin and it's a lot more fun. But when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit, verse 21, and the word for benefit is 
karpos, which should be a familiar word to us. It's fruit. It's production. What production were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Was there any production there? No, it was all human good. It was all sin. There's no production there whatsoever. What production, what fruit was being developed from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Now, remember what I said when we went through the eight categories of death? There were two that we're going to apply in the passage. The first is spiritual death, which is the reference to death back in verse 16. And the second is carnal death. Carnal death, we're separated from God and we produce wood, hay, and straw. And that's the point here. The outcome of those things is carnal death. The outcome of operating as a believer on the sin nature produces dead works. It produces death. It produces carnality. It is no good and it is self-destructive. Contrast, verse 22, but now, having been, past tense, now, having been freed, from sin. And this is a, another uh, aorist passive participle, and I think it should be causal, but now because you have been freed from sin, and because you have been enslaved to God, those go together, you have two aorist participles there, aorist passive participles, but now because you have been freed from sin, and because you have been enslaved to God, see how he established that point already at the instant of salvation? You were freed from sin, and at the same time, simultaneously, you are enslaved to God. Now he comes back to that point. He says, because this happened, you derive your benefit. Bad translation. You have, literally it's echo, you have your fruit, your production toward sanctification. Now, production is distinct from sanctification here. They're not the same thing. It is that fruit i.e. the fruit of the Spirit. We John, let me pull this together for you. In John 15, we talked about that you, we have to abide in Christ, have fellowship with Christ in order to produce fruit. In Galatians 5, we had an extended study where we saw that you have to walk by means of the Spirit in order to produce fruit. In John 15, it's apparent that the primary purpose of the believer's relationship with Christ is to produce fruit. So fruit is a key. Fruit is always measured in terms of character. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, against which there is no law. So it's character. It's the character of Jesus Christ. So first of all, you have you, our volition is engaged to actuate our belief in the principle. You are to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, back in verse 11. Then, as we learn the Word and we apply it under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then produces character, which is fruit. And this is toward the goal of making us sanctified or usable to God in His service. So, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, now that doesn't mean that we don't have a sin nature. It just means we're freed from the tyranny of the sin nature. Freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your fruit toward. Ace plus the accusative always indicates goal. It's toward the goal of hagiasman, sanctification. And then you have a very interesting phrase, and the outcome, and the outcome is another word that's very familiar to us, telos, teleao, uh, telios. It has to do with the end result, 
the goal, bringing something to, the verb means to bring to completion, to bring to maturity. And so this is the, telos indicates the end result. The goal of the process is what? Eternal life. Now see, the problem for most of us is that we equate eternal life. Eternal life equals salvation equals avoiding hell. Right? But that is not what the word means in many contexts. It's not just not going to hell and avoiding judgment. It has to do with the capacity and quality of life that is ours as a believer as a result of spiritual maturity. Jesus said, I came to give life. That's that's life without end. That is salvation, phase one. I came to give life and to give it what? Abundantly. Abundantly. That's, that's the concept of eternal life. It's not only, Ionos not only has the idea of quantity, in other, in other words, life without end, but it has the idea of depth and quality, which is the, 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 the ability to appreciate everything that God's given us and the happiness and the joy that God has for us as part of the spiritual life. All of that is, is part of that process. So, when Paul is talking here, He's already gotten them saved back in Romans 3 and Romans 4 with imputation. He's in spiritual life here. So eternal life here is not avoiding hell and damnation. Eternal life here is the quality of life that God has for us as spiritually mature believers. Life begins with maturity. It really doesn't begin at birth. Although it does in terms of the temporal sense or eternal non-ending sense. And then we come to verse 23. And if you'll notice, this is a verse that we always quote and apply in terms of, of a gospel witness. But what's the context? Are we talking about salvation phase one here? For the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment you receive for your work is a wage. If you are living in carnality, under the power of the sin nature, still presenting yourself as a slave to the sin nature, the payment you're going to get is carnal death. This is not spiritual death here. This is carnal death. This is the fact that you're going to be a failure in life, you're going to be miserable, you're going to be unhappy, and you're always going to be on a frantic search for happiness. But the free gift of God, notice once again, it's a free gift of God, it's not earned, it's not by works, we're talking about the spiritual life sanctification phase two, it's not by works, it's a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not really a salvation verse. This is really a verse talking about the quality of our life that we have in Christ Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus because we have been baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection. So that concludes Paul's argument that he started back in 6.1, that we have been identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, we, ha- we can walk in newness of life. That is that eternal life that he's talking about. It's not salvation, phase one, eternal life here. This is talking about the quality and capacity of life for the mature believer, and that is, a, that is ours. It is potential from salvation and is actuated by understanding that we are uh, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ, and we have to grow to spiritual maturity. Now, that wraps up chapter 6. Now, in chapter 7, he's going to come back and talk about the role of the law and the problem of the law in relationship to the believer, and we will begin that next time with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we do thank you 
that our life is based on grace and not by law, that you have provided such a fantastic system of salvation for us that it is dependent solely and exclusively on what Jesus Christ did for us and not on who we are or what we have done. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the freedom that we have in Christ, that we are freed from the power of the sin nature, but we have been made at the instant of salvation slaves to righteousness and slaves to you, and we are to live as slaves to righteousness and not put ourselves back under the dominion of the sin nature. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.